And now, live from Studio One in Castlebar, it's the Jack McDonald Show. Yes, you are all very welcome back to the Jack McDonald Show here on CRCFM. Of course, if you want to phone us in, that's 094-902-7442. And if you want to text in, that's 087-935-0043. And why not email us at email, or rather, studio at crcfm.ie. Well, you're all very welcome back to another week here on the Jack McDonald Show. It's great to be here, truly. Uh, Last Friday, while I was not on the air officially, I secured two huge interviews. Tonight, you will hear one of them. It's George Hook. That's right, the man who, whatever, 10 days ago I had teased was going to be the interview. I interviewed him. And the all the audio went all awry. Well, he kindly agreed to come back and do it all again. So you'll hear that at about 20 past 11. Before then, we'll be speaking to Donal Ryan, who is a... Well, he's going to be talking... He's going to be reviewing the weekend sporting action. He is a veteran of the sports show. So we'll see if we can get, uh, if we can get some stories out of him. And then, of course, tomorrow... We will bring you the interview I did also on Friday with the one and only local legend Noah Baba. Noah, Noah Baba, of course, has been, you know, uh, he's, he's been to kind of hell and back in, in many fashions. He's been to England, Ireland, and really everywhere. Germany, I believe, now playing football. And truly a fascinating story as to his kind of life in the spotlight and life as a professional footballer. And I believe he still is a professional footballer. So, really interesting story. Now... I would be amiss if I didn't say the papers were a little thin. Firstly, we have a man with 39 wives, and unfortunately he has passed away in India, which I'm sure has left probably the craziest uh, divorce, or, or, or rather uh, post-death battle ever. But he is a polygamist, and he's a sect leader who had 39 wives and at least 127 children. God, did this guy have time for anything else? Uh, and grandchildren, sorry. Uh, he has died in northeastern uh, India, age 76, officials have said. He, so not necessarily... Well, a long enough life. I'd say a long life when you have to deal with 39 wives. That must... I, I, would, say, I would imagine that's such an amount... Uh, like one one wife, people have difficulty keeping to one wife or one husband. Imagine even thirty nine of them. Anyway, he died in hospital on Sunday, and um, apparently it was with a heavy heart that the thirty nine wives and whatever two hundred kids said goodbye to him. He is a sect leader, so of course there has to be a religious religious element to this. You don't just get thirty nine wives. You have to at least put in the work to fashion some sort of religion around it. He would carve wooden furniture and make pottery items. Well, I'd imagine there's not a, not, a lot, not, not a lot of money to spare when you have to provide for a hundred mouths or whatever. Then, if anybody out there wants to be a digital influencer, uh, I would say open up your phone and post a video and then get a real job. But no, if you want to do it, just do it. Go ahead, do it. But don't do a camp would be my recommendation. However, IT Carlo have gone against my recommendation. We spoke before about they them being on the cutting edge, or certainly on the edge of something, when they announced their esports team for next year. So they will be rocking in a load of fellas in pajamas are going to be the new athletes of IT Carlo. Well, IT Carlo has launched a summer course. It's the Ireland's first ever online influencer course. 
Aspiring influencers can now study a course to help them launch an online career. So if you ever wanted to promote teeth whitening brands or uh, really just sell yourself for cheap online, this seems to be one of the ways to do it. A long, uh, week-long summer course has been launched at IT Carlo aimed at secondary school students from transition year to sixth year. Wow, so they're, they're saying that even when your mind has been developed a little bit, we're still going to challenge you. The aim is to help them develop their online presence, build a business, launch a fan page, or launch a social justice campaign. He knows there's not enough of those social justice campaigns. Uh, the two young women, the uh, two young w- women, will give students an insight into how they use the app to grow their follower count to hundreds of thousands apiece. Students will also meet small small business owners. And to be fair, I recognise a lot of the names in here. I've interviewed one or two of them. They're pretty sound people, but um, I I gotta say, the people showing up to that camp, I would have s- severe doubts. I think they should be going to probably a mental health institute rather than an influencer camp. I mean. Uh, it's it's not a uh, it's not a career it, like it's it's like signing up for ri- reality TV at sixteen. It's just a little bit bonkers. One last story, and it's in the paper, so I'll have to just grab it. Uh, it is the story. Uh, here we have it. It is the story of the frontline workers. So throughout the last few months, people have been generally quite supportive of frontline workers. You know, uh, and they they put a lot on the line. Uh, what you know, and all those sentiments have been heard before. Well, uh, a group that have not been clapping for the carers or the NHS or indeed the HSE are criminals because apparently, in the wake of uh, the the recent crime spree, the re- the recent crime spree appears to be targeted around. Uh, these special uh, car converters, these emission converters, because they can fetch anywhere from 300 to 1,000 a pop for these converters. And so the criminals have decided in the last year, why not hop around to Beaumont, Beaumont Hospital in Dublin and Our Lady Hospital of Lords in Drogheda, just to name a few, and actually start stealing the converters of all of the frontline workers. Uh, the thieves have now turned their attention to motorists in County Limerick, County Wexford, County Waterford and County Clare. At present, the Cadillac converter which can be removed within 90 seconds and cost motorists as much as 1,500 to replace are being stolen because they contain precious metals. And uh, the criminals, who have figured out how to obviously process these, have decided to go after the nurses and doctors who are on the front lines. I mean, a um, Machiavellian, you could say. Machiavellian, definitely. So, as I said, Don Ryan will be joining us in kind of uh, about... Five ten minutes. So in the way, in the meantime, we're going to take a few pieces of music. Uh, I think Bob Dylan first, and then of course uh, maybe a little piece from uh, yeah, a bit of Californication, and then we will be back with the very great Don Ryan. So don't go anywhere. Yes, thank you, Laura. As always, if you want to get in touch with the program, that's 087-935-0043. Now, of course, the biggest stories dominating the headlines are in the sporting realm this week, which is why a man with 39 wives is all I could really conjure up. Donal Ryan is on the line. How are things, Donal? How are things, Jack? Thanks very much for that. <laughs> Donal, do you think you could live with 39 wives? Uh, probably not, to be honest. <laughs> It'd be a headache, all right. Anyway, uh, the Euros, of course, are well and truly underway. Firstly, the Ericsson debacle. What did you make of that? Oh, it was absolutely horrific, wasn't it? I mean, 
I mean, the actions of the Danish captain, Simon Kier, and the goalkeeper, Kasper Schmeichel, and, of course, the rest of the Danish team, and, of course, without saying, the medical staff, too, that right in the stadium, they can only be commended for their actions because, no doubt, they, they saved his life. Like, I mean, they said that they got they got him, they got got him his pulse back going on the first goal of the defibrillator, which is which was fantastic, but it, it really looked like touch and go. It really looked like it was touch and go there for a while, you know? Yeah, it, it kind of um, raises the question, and you know, we've seen it many years ago with the LucasAid incident, or potentially the LucasAid incident of Patrice Mwamba and all that stuff. It raises the question as to, is there anything that more nefarious going on? I often like to spout the idea that perhaps the amount of uh, the, the amount of doping is perhaps much higher than we hear of. Do you think it's anything like that, or is it just simply the amount of usage on those lungs? And um, well, that's that's a it's a very it's a pretty fair question to ask, I suppose. And um, you'd wonder how much stuff like doping gets covered up in football. I mean, you hear about it a lot in sports like athletics or running or swimming, mostly like. So I'd imagine a, a degree of it does go on in football behind the scenes. But um, to be honest, I'd say this was just a, a freak incident, really. And mm. um, there's no really there's no there's no way anyone can really come out and officially say that uh, Ericsson and all he was taking substances or whatever that you shouldn't have been. But, um, you know, these things, unfortunately, they can just happen. And uh, as unfortunate as it was, I think Ericsson was just, uh, he, he just was just seriously unlucky. I wouldn't mind as well, but he was actually having a very good game up until that. And it, while it, it happened in, towards the end of the first half and he was he was playing a great game, he didn't look like there was any there was anything bothering him. He just literally just dropped to the ground. And like I said, uh, the quick thinking of his teammates and the medical team can only be commended for what they did for him. Yeah. What have you made so far of the general pace and the general quality of the Euros? Not a lot of anticipation coming up to this. I think Bono and his bank account were the only ones particularly excited. What have you made of it? Ah, well, as a, as a soccer fan, you know, I was really looking forward to it. And to be honest, I think the, the games have really lived up to the hype that was surrounding it. Um, there's been some great football being played I mean a few of the matches today might have been a bit scrappy but um, it's been entertaining enough like I was just looking through the results there and tonight the last game that was on against Sweden or between Sweden and Spain was the only nil-nil draw we've had yet and even that was entertaining enough I mean Spain had the lion's share of the chances of course but um, what's I think the it's standard of quality been... what's the standard of football that's been played is, is it up to standard I, I think so yeah I mean you know, like the group, the group of death is on tomorrow, which has three of the big hitters. You know, France, Germany, and Portugal all in that in that group. So I'd say a lot of people will be waiting to see what they can produce. And mm. um, the likes of Belgium and Italy, Italy, you know, kind of under the radar a wee bit coming into the tournament, but they had eight straight wins and scored seventeen goals and had conceded none in those games. So you know, I'm not sure how. Uh, a lot more wasn't made of that going into the tournament, but they they really backed it up on Friday night with a comprehensive three 0 win over Turkey. Yeah, of course, the big story yesterday was England's uh, victory over narrow victory over Croatia, and I guess the question we have to ask Donald is: Is football coming home? Um, off the back of that performance, I don't think so. I think England certainly have a lot more to give than what they showed yesterday. Uh, the only player that stood out for me was Calvin Phillips, who was. Uh, instrumental in the goal of course you know he picked up the ball from Kyle Walker and just drove at the Croatian team and later off to Sterling who put it away with a nice finish but uh, I think England and uh, Harry Kane in particular certainly have a lot more to show than that and um, they'd want to seriously up their game if they're if they're looking to beat Scotland on uh, on Friday Scotland were playing today there of course and um, I thought they they played very well even though the result really didn't go their way at all 
Yes, and of course, Arnautovic is the other big story. Have you seen this one? I have, yeah. Um, Just mental, on- mental stuff. So, uh, and Arnautovic, of course, we, we all know him from the Premier League, but he got into a heated exchange during the weekend. Did You weren't by any chance watching the match. I was, yeah. And um, at first at first glance, uh, I thought Arnautovic, Arnautovic was just a bit, a bit miffed that he wasn't started. And I thought when he went off on his rant that uh, it was just kind of aimed at the, at the bench for not starting him as he was previous for that. You know, he's a he's a he's a bit of a he's a bit of a character. Like you know, he, he has he has previous when it comes to like you know issues with his temper and his his attitude. So uh, on first glance, I thought it was just something like that again. But uh, upon a upon, upon a bit more research, it seemed that it was a, a bit more serious than that. You know? Yeah, you're certainly a bit of a character when you have to issue a statement that says, a "quote I'm not racist." So the incident <laughs> we're speaking of is he got into a heated altercation, which ultimately led to the famous words, "quote I'll f your Albanian mother" in the direction, or sorry, these are alleged words in the director in the direction of his opponent. Uh, on Monday, so the striker's apology, rather, on Monday is dire- directly referencing those people, and uh, it looks like if um, if if he did say it, certainly he he appears to be apologetic, but certainly you know a, a story of how tempers can flare. Of course, yeah, and like, he was after he was after coming off the bench to score a goal in the European Championships for his country. You know, I'd imagine he kind of lost the head a wee bit. I, I'm not sure where all that stuff he was coming out for it coming out with came from but um, you know I'd imagine he will have to be reprimanded for that if it's true yeah and I think my favourite story of the sporting weekend was the best in show doll competition I presume you weren't tuning into this one Donald no I wasn't tuning into it now <laughs> but I, I did see bits of it going around alright especially uh, the poor Boston Terrier who nearly got absolutely flattened by his owner there when he was coming out of the tunnel his <laughs> owner tripped him one. nearly absolutely he, he tripped over just as the dog was coming out and he nearly absolutely crushed him <laughs> It well, was, it was pre- it was pretty funny, you know, but um, well, the the, the winner, both, uh, of course, sorry. is is a is a Pentagese dog, and the Guardian have gone with hot dog. So Wasabi is the name of the dog who has won. He wins best in show at Westminster's Dog Show, and this is what they're heralding as a, I suppose, a, a momentous occasion. That's a tiny little creature, and I gotta say, it doesn't look like the kind of dog that would win best in show. If I'd be honest. Um, yeah, I know he was tiny. I mean, I think he has more hair on him. Than, I think his hair probably weighs more than the actual dog itself does. You know. Yeah. But um, apparently, he's a bit of a he, he's a bit of a he comes from a, a good background because apparently his, his grandfather won the same show in 2012 and won again in 2017. So I think he he was probably a, tipped as a hot favorite going into it. Now I wouldn't be I wouldn't be too big up on my dog shows now to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in America, imagine, it's imagine a huge, it, it's a huge betting yeah. thing as well. It's there's millions spent every every dog show on on the betting. They go absolutely mad for uh, putting money, and especially uh, it's more about the breeds, not necessarily the exact. You know, in horse racing, Noel Noel uh, Hoban, of course, is was the CRC man. But you you pick your uh, you pick your exact horse in the dog betting game. You pick the the color or their name or anything, uh, but you don't actually pick the exact dog. So it seems like somebody will have made, you know, a fair crust on, of course, Wasabi during the weekend. Did you see Jim White, the Sky Sports presenter, has announced his retirement? Yeah, and um, Jim, you know, he like synonymous with uh, transfer deadline day, of course, and the yellow tie and everything. And, of course, lo- losing the mind at the 11th hour for last-minute mm. deals getting pushed through. 
I'm sure, Jim, I'm sure we won't have seen the back of him. Uh, you know, he's, he's features for talk sport and stuff as well. So I'd say he, he won't be gone completely off the airwaves just yet. But uh, yeah, it's a, a big loss for Sky because, as I said, he's synonymous with deadline day. Yeah, he'll probably start a podcast because there isn't enough of those. Uh, the women's team, have you seen, the women's team are in the news and uh, for for once they have decided that the issue is now equal pay. We've, we haven't heard this one before. This is a unique take by the women's team, but they've got a documentary coming out on HBO Max. It's going to, I guess, go into, you know, go through the whole thing again, but it seems like I, from from where I'm standing, and maybe I'm in a bubble, but there's very little support for this cause outside of like this, you know, the the kind of uh, the, the people who are obviously uh, kind of indoctrinated within this. Donald, am I crazy? Sorry, am I crazy to think that there isn't a that that there isn't a lot of support behind the the women's team's equal pays bid? Yeah. Um. Well. Sorry, Jack, but um, yeah, it um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say you're crazy, but it does, there doesn't seem to be uh, a fair amount of support for outside of the women's game, which is kind of unfortunate, really. I mean, when you look at the achievements of the American women's soccer team, they've won way more stuff than the men's have than the men's soccer team have. And this doc, this documentary that uh, is coming out on HBO will uh, has been following them since March 2019, which was before they won. The, the last Women's World Cup, which was the second, their second consecutive win and their fourth one overall, and um, so I'd say it would certainly give a better insight into it, into how things are standing there. Now they did try to sue, uh, they did try to sue the, they did try to sue in America, but uh, they lost their case. Yeah, it was so, a, it was a hilarious uh, lawsuit because as somebody who's not a lawyer, you don't need to be a lawyer to recognize. Basically, before they went to the, their latest World Cup tournament, which they won, they were offered either a fixed amount or basically a performance-based incentive package. And it turns out that if they had got the incentive package, if they had gone for that option, they would have made way more money and pretty much equal to what the men's team made, you know, because they won and they, they their performance was incredible during, throughout that tournament. They went with the other option. You know, it's like you sit down at a roulette table and you pick, pick black and it, it goes on red. So they basically sued and they said, no, 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 we want to go back on red. And the judge said, come on, you can't be doing that. But... We'll see where that lawsuit uh, goes. Maybe you'll take up the case. Now, Roland Garros, were you... Uh, I don't know if you're a tennis fan, but did, did you watch any of Roland Garros finals this weekend? Uh, I, was, I was keeping an eye on them, yeah, and I have to say it was a serious performance from Novak Djokovic to to retain the title. Um, it's the first time ever that uh, he... It's the, he's the first male player to ever win double career grand, grand slams in the Open era, and he beat uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas. Uh, was, who had who had a great run in the tournament, and uh, just be, I just found out that this evening that uh, just before he stepped onto the court, five minutes before it, I believe he had just found out that his grandmother had passed away. Wow! So for him to to even go out and compete and play as good a match as he did in the final, I mean, that can only be applauded, really. Mm. Cutting edge insight. That's why you listen to Donald Ryan on the Jeff McDonald show. Yeah, I didn't even know that. Did you watch the the women's final? Was less intriguing, and I don't mean to be harping on a bandwagon because the uh, I, we had been following, of course, the Greek woman Sakari, who had been I don't know if I'm getting that name wrong, but she had been going very well throughout the whole tournament. There was a lot of buzz about her, but unfortunately, she dropped out in the semi final, which meant that the final was a little bit of a boring affair. To be fair, no more different than Djokovic. And um, the Greek, the other Greek fella. 
Yeah, well, it was still a good, a good final. I mean, Barbara Chechkova, her maiden Grand Slam singles title, I mean, it's, I, I doubt she found it too important now, to be honest. I mean, it's a cause of great celebration for her. And it was the first time, actually, that um, the tournament, that uh, both the singles, uh, the singles winners uh, hail from Slavic-speaking countries with Djokovic, of course, from Serbia and Barbara Trechkova from uh, Czech Republic. So that's just another wee uh, fun fact for you there about <laughs> that one. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Dono. I, I've never had this amount of fun facts. You're doing much more research <laughs> than Keevin did. Uh, so that, of course, Dono Ryan, once again, thank you so much. Our, the George Hook interview, of course, will be coming up in about 19, uh, 15, 19 minutes. Uh, but for now, we're going to take some music. Firstly, we will take another Bob Dylan song. This is Bob Dylan with Gotta Serve Somebody. <laughs> Well, you're very welcome back to the Jack McDonald Show here. Now, about 10 days ago, I had perhaps one of the best interviews of my life, and I opened it up, and my heart sank, because you could just hear me, and there was, that wasn't even you know, particularly interesting. The other end was the interesting part, and it was just gone. But the man on the line has kindly agreed to redo it all over again. He has been seen on TV for about the greater part of three decades, radio via News Talk, his hugely popular show, The Right Hook, and he joins me here today. George Hook, thanks once again for joining me. Uh, Jack, well, don't feel bad about it. I was in the BBC studios uh, in London, uh, but broadcasting back to Dublin, obviously, on an outside broadcast. And I had the great Esther Ranson uh, on the show. And uh, we did the interview. And then the guy back in uh, Dublin forgot to turn on the record button. <laughs> uh, and Esther Ranson just said, no problem. Let's do it again. Mm. And if you think I only did that once, Believe it or not, I had an interview with uh, the then Secretary of State for the United States of America, Hillary Clinton, when she came in Dub into Dublin and um, the guy holding the recording device forgot to press record. <laughs> uh, and the Secretary for State said, OK, let's do it again. Yeah. So I'm happy to do it for you. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Thanks. So what have you been up to over the last, you know, since we last spoke, but just broadly, we didn't even really speak much about it last time, the last 15 months. What have you been up to? All right. Well, um, my father, I, I had an extraordinary relationship with my parents uh, and I adored my father. And, and um, every Sunday we used to go to quarter past 11 mass in St. Augustine's Church in Cork. And then we would walk for about an hour and a half or so, and we would just talk. And I learned about current affairs, about politics, about life, or, or we'd have quiz questions about the capitals of different <laughs> countries or whatever. Mm. But one of the things he said to me was, he said, when one door closes, another door will always open. So... And I found that in my life, all, all in every phase of my life, I found that happen. So when I lost my job uh, because of uh, not very clever remarks I made, um, you know, it felt like this is the end, you know. Mm. So what door then opened, right? Well, the first door that opened, believe it or not, was I was very lucky that I was an old man when it happened. 
So I became an old age pensioner, you know, <laughs> I was supposed to be in a broadcaster. Mm. And now I had time on my hands. And I know this will sound crass to a lot of people, but like I didn't play golf for, for my entire time in news talk, really, because of course, obviously I was working mm. and then with television on Saturdays, I didn't play at all. So suddenly I started to play golf, which was fun, but it's not the golf ball. It's the friends you're playing with, people I hadn't spent time with. And then there's the lovely Ingrid, you know. Suddenly I'm home for dinner. I'm not on the radio or I'm doing things. Mm. And there's my children and my grandchildren. And suddenly that door opened into another life. Mm. What would have happened if the door hadn't shut is... I'd probably be working still. I'd be working today because mm. that's the kind of person I am. Mm. Would that have been better for me financially? Sure. Mm. Would it have been better for me in any other aspect, emotionally, psychologically, or anything else? No. So I'm better off. Mm. So coming up, news. coming up, of course, t tonight is the Euros as we record this. And I was reflecting on because not only did you do rugby commentary for Six Nations or things like that, but you did, you know, the World Cup. I remember getting up, I believe it was five or even 4 a.m. with my dad and watching yourself and all the commentary team in for, I believe, what was the New Zealand World Cup. So I was wondering, what was the process like of preparing a show for the World Cup as opposed to perhaps you know, more of the, I suppose, the Six Nations or more of the friendly games? Well, the kind of person I am, um, first of all, you've got to remember that I was a failure for the monumental proportion of my life. And I got a break when I was 55 years of age. Uh, and so I, I really sort of had 20 years of work when most people would be winding down. I was winding up. <laughs> But one of the things I did, I'm not unusual in it, but I'm in a minority in it. I prepare assiduously, whether it's radio, television, or whatever. And I would spend hours before a rugby game uh, preparing. And it wouldn't really matter to me, like the very first game I ever did for RT paid me £25 for it. It was Ireland against Romania in a friendly. Like, I prepared incredibly hard. They couldn't believe it. Like, who's this strange guy over <laughs> in the corner who's been here for the last four hours? <laughs> you know? uh, it was the same. World Cup or friendly or whatever. It was always the same. I, I worked very hard at preparation, you know. Mm. Mm. When let's well, I think we should take it back because you said you got paid twenty five pound for your first show, but even before then, you had a huge stint in business, and we touched upon it before. But ultimately, that led to a pretty low point in your life. Can you bring us through? Firstly, starting a catering company, and then you know, almost taking your own life. Well, I mean, the first thing is that, and and I when I talk to. Uh, particularly young people, as I do now. I do a lot of stuff at my old school, Presentation College in Cork, uh, with the transition year guys. And I say the same thing to them. If you're not happy in your work, you're not going to succeed about it. The ultimate uh, test is, would you do this job for nothing? Mm. And 
if <laughs> I could say it now, but if RTE and Newstock had didn't pay me, I would have done it for nothing. Mm. Instead of which, I went into a business. A, I knew nothing about. So what's the first key? The first key is you got to know what you're doing. I didn't. Second thing is you got to enjoy it. You got to be happy jumping out of bed to go to work. I had to drag myself out of work, out of bed to go to work because I hated every single day of my working life. Every day. I mean, people listening are saying, ah, he's exaggerating. <laughs> there were a couple of good days. Mm. No, there were. There were no good days. Mm. And that, remember, is of for a period of 25 years. So mm. think about being in a job for 25 years and you didn't have one good day. Mm. Um, so what I did was, and what, what kept me sane, was rugby. Like I coached rugby. There's great jokes at rugby dinners, not so much now, but but when I was involved. And they used to list all the clubs I coached, you know, there's this long list of schools and clubs and Connacht, the province, and the the Irish uh, students team and the Irish women's team and all this sort of stuff. But the reason I did all that was it kept me sane. They were the only sane moments I had. And then, you see, I couldn't go home. This is the other problem, really, um, was because there'd be somebody waiting at the door saying, you owe me money, George. So I'd drive around until it was pitch dark, and then i go home, and then get up early um, before they came in the morning. <laughs> so uh, I, I just spent my life, 25 years, really, avoiding people. Uh, I owed money to because I never made a cent in mm. 25 years. Mm. How do I keep it going? You may well ask. <laughs> I just borrow more money. <laughs> I had an unbelievable skill to borrow money. <laughs> and so I just borrowed more and more money mm. to keep this sinking ship alive. Mm. And the other thing I did was I was a very good salesman. So I'd get another, I'd sell another contract, you know. Mm. Um, and that would keep me going maybe for another couple of months. So I just kept mm. going on, you know. And and because I'm like playing golf now, mm. I'm, I'm very competitive, even at 80 years of age. And, and I'm very proud. I don't like losing. Mm. So translate that now into business. I was too proud, like, to, to go into bankruptcy. You know, I was too competitive. I, mm. I could do it. I can turn it around. So, you know, mm. but of course I couldn't. I mean, I didn't have the skills. Mm. How do you run a catering company if you can't boil an egg? <laughs> Everybody who worked for me made a lot of money, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, all the people who supplied me with stuff made a lot of money. The only person who didn't make any money was me. <laughs> When the rugby got a little bit more intense in your life, how did the, the catering company and the, the rugby line up? And eventually you went on to coach, you listed many of them, but you went on to coach Connacht and over to the US. What were those experiences like? Well, I mean, first of all, the catering had stopped um, because it, it stopped because nobody had said give me any anything you know I couldn't no I didn't have a creditor left to mm. give me stuff so the, the business just stopped so now I'm in a position that I owe money and I've no job and I'm 
you know, the problem for many self-employed people, which in effect I was, is like you don't qualify for unemployment. But again, I'd be too proud to 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 go to the unemployment exchange. So I had a lot of friends in America because I coached the national team in the first ever World Cup in 87. And I get this phone call and the guy says, we're looking for somebody to run rugby in America. And I said, I'm interested. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, we can't pay you. We haven't any money. And I said, I'll raise the money. Mm. So I got a sponsor and there wasn't a lot in it. Um, but I, I was working, mm. you know. Mm. Now I'm working on something I know. Now I'm working on something, dare I say, I'm good at. Mm. Um, and, but I'm in America. I got a wife and three kids in Ireland. And I'm in Providence, Rhode Island. And I'm kind of spending six months over there and six months in Ireland. And my marriage is going down the toilet. And, you know, I'm living. <laughs> I don't have much money. And I'm living in this tiny basement apartment. In, in a fa- It's actually a famous street in Providence. It's called Benefit Street. And there are all these wonderful 200-year-old houses. And... There aren't too many 200-year-old houses in America. The country is barely 200 years old. So anyway, um, it's so small that I, I can't fit a table and a chair in it. So the bed is on stilts, so I can put the table and chair under the bed. This tiny place, like, and I'm over there on my own. And, like, I haven't any cooking facilities. Not that I could cook anyway, as you know. Um, so now I'm living on uh, Big Macs, you know, and and, uh, and I'm traveling all over America. I've been in every single state of, in America, with the exception of North and South Dakota. Mm. Uh, and you can, you can pick a city or town at random, and I've probably been in it mm. in America. With RTE, you, of course, had that 25-pound once-off gig, but then it would actually take a while before you became a mainstay regular. Talk us through that, of forming one of the partnerships that really brought rugby from hundreds to millions. Well, the, the thing was that it was amazing to me, looking back, that RTE had the perfect template for sports television in soccer. They had Giles and Dunphy and Bill O'Hurley, God rest him. So they had a panel, they had a, a chairman, and we all tuned in. And Dunphy and Giles were going at it, and, you know, everything. But in rugby, now at this point, there's really only the Five Nations Championship, and then there's the odd touring team or something like that. But it's not a lot of rugby. And remember, like, there's about... 200 people watching an interprovincial match, you know. Mm. So, um, but even so, they, they never copied the idea of having a regular panel. So they're a different person, they're different people every time they did it, even for the World Cup, where like they had maybe what, 15, 16 games televised in the space of two or three weeks. They still swapped and changed and everything. Mm. And Gaelic football and hurling was exactly the same, even less so. I mean, they didn't really do anything in Gaelic football, yet they had the perfect template in soccer. Mm. And then this, they, they, they got this idea, this young guy. And like when I first met him, he was 
not much more than the tea boy mm. that first gig that 25 pound gig and then like they didn't talk to me for a couple of years maybe and then he came back and he said look i had this idea of you mm. this guy pope who i didn't know and this guy mcgurk um, who I didn't know, but we're going to put you on every week. We're going to have the same people every single week, just like rugby. Mm. And it worked. Mm. Now, partially it worked because of us. Like, let me take <laughs> a bit of credit here. Um, it partially worked because of us, like that. But it worked because we were the same people every week. Mm. So if last week George said, Ireland are going to lose, Everybody was tuning in next week to say, I told you so, <laughs> you know, yeah. Ireland won or whatever. So they were you were developing a relationship with the audience. Mm. Um, but then the other thing that happened was professionalism. So now there are much more games. Now there are November internationals. Now there is the Heineken Cup. Uh, so now we, we've got, 25 weekends a year, maybe something like that, maybe more sometimes. Uh, and we're on television. So now it's a, it's a real live gig. Mm. But once down the corridor, the two soccer guys are making a fortune. And the rugby <laughs> guys are badly paid, you know? So then we kind of, um, it wasn't exactly industrial action, but we <laughs> plucked up enough courage to ask for more money. Mm. So we never actually sort of paralleled the soccer guys, but but we slipped into second place in the earnings. <laughs> uh, poor Pat Spillane was at the bottom of the pile. <laughs> and uh, the, the Gaelic guys got the least amount of money. Mm. And every time I'd meet Spillane in the corridor, he'd start giving out about the money we earned. Uh, so it was interesting, you know, because RTE are fantastic, were fantastic. Nobody has given them credit for what they've done with sports television. Mm. Like, who'd give a job to a 55-year-old fat, bald guy <laughs> who wasn't an international? Mm. There wasn't an international in the room when we broadcast, because Popey wasn't international, McGurk wasn't international. Mm. Where did, you know, suddenly they get Spillane on Gaelic football, you know, they get Joe Brawley. Uh, and they gave us unbelievable freedom. Mm. They didn't tell us how to dress, what we had to say, anything. Mm. Today, it's not so much that the pundits are, are worse, because they're not. Mm. But they are picked from a very small group. And I'm talking about rugby, mm. particularly. They're picked from former internationals. Everybody in the panel is a former international. Mm. Because you're very good at rugby, does that mean you're a very good broadcaster? Mm. Answer, maybe or maybe not. Mm. But there's no correlation between the fact that you're a rugby international and that you're a broadcaster. The other thing that happens is that, that the rugby international is a very recent international mm. And he's talking about his friends on the team. Now, is he going to say, you know, Brian O'Driscoll, is Brian O'Driscoll actually going to say, well, Johnny Sexton's a heap of crap, you know? <laughs> he's not. Mm. And they don't. Mm. Mm. And then they they essentially uh, do it in a, 
in a way that the station wants them to do it, be it Sky or anybody else. And then also, and this is the most important thing, that, that to be fair to the current pundits, because the stations are paying huge money for the sport, there is more advertising. So therefore, there is much less discussion at halftime and after the match because it keeps going to ads. Mm, mm. Well, they may be questionable. Some are very good, some perhaps not. As broadcasters, you yourself was undoubtedly somebody who was a great broadcaster and was able to make rugby palatable to the masses. You were talking last time about how you use ties and French war metaphors to make it appealing, appealing to not just the men who watched rugby, to the women, to the kids, to everyone. Well, I, I got fabulous advice from Bill O'Hurley. Um, who was a good friend and another court man. And he said to me, he said, George, never forget that 75% of the people who watch sport don't understand it. Mm. So make it understandable. So I never really talked about, you know, the tight heads foot position or, uh, you know, the, 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 the distance between the respective back lines or whatever, because people didn't understand that. So I, I, I did it in that kind of way, or early he helped. But like if, you see, I always wanted to be a broadcaster. Like I remember I'd been 10 or 12 or something and going to the Mardike in Cork and I, I would have a baked beans tin, an empty baked beans tin on like a stick and my father would take me to the game and then I'd broadcast the game to, to myself <laughs> sitting in thing. And it was the very early days of tape recorders and a palomine did a tape recorder. Mm. And, and I did a radio show. I did a one-hour sports program on, on this tape recorder at home. I'm about 15. Uh, I did all the voices. So I did the, the, the presenter and I said, now we're going over to Raymond Glendening at Epsom. And then I do Raymond Glendening and I'm off to John Arlott at cricket. And I do him and I do all that. But like what I didn't have was the confidence that I could do it. Mm. Or even the confidence to write a letter and say, hello, can I have, a, can I, can I have an interview? Mm. Never did that. Mm. Mm. So then when it happened, by coincidence, and I'm 55. <laughs> like just a miracle has happened. Like there's the, this extraordinary combination of me yeah. and the kind of skills that I have, which is essentially <laughs> being able to talk <laughs> and broadcasting. Mm. And I just adored it. Mm. I mean, I uh, words cannot express the joy I had in broadcasting, radio and television. Well, let's Beyond talk about me. your radio for a second. Okay. You stepped into the News Talk studio, uh, and for tw for the best part of almost 20 years, you were one of the biggest names in broadcasting. We talked, again, we talked about it before, but you massively heralded News Talk to a new place. Talk me through the formation of your show, what kind of uh, segments and how you put those segments together, and just your general approach to two hours of live radio every day well you see the thing is that everybody in radio at the moment it, it, it has grown up with television they haven't grown up with mm. radio they've essentially grown up with television 
So therefore, whether they are a broadcaster, researcher, or producer, the thought process, and it, 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 they may not even know that, but, but it's built in, if you like, mm. the thought process is, this is television, we just don't have any pictures. Whereas radio is completely different. Now, when you, when you think of me, I grew up with radio. I didn't see television until I was 21. Mm. So therefore, I had this extraordinary grounding in radio. Broadcasting is when I'm doing more homework at home as a schoolboy. Uh, you invariably listen to the BBC because RTE had very limited coverage. I mean, don't forget, RTE had the news at nine o'clock in the morning and then went off the air until lunchtime, then did a couple of lunchtime programs and went off the air mm -hmm. until six o'clock, okay? So you listen to BBC and all these wonderful radio broadcasters, comedians, current affairs people, whatever they were. And I listened to them and I didn't know I was learning, but I was, it's this osmosis. So suddenly I understand radio. So. Then news talk are, are, are going to open up in in March, April, I think. Definitely March or April, I just can't remember. And like at Christmas time, they have all the slots filled except drive time. And the guy they wanted for drive time wasn't going to be available for a few months. So they said, who do we know who's cheap, who can <laughs> fill in? And then said, so where do you try hook? So they asked me and I said sure mm. and and uh, then like after the first year at the end of the first year in audience terms I was delivering more than every other broadcaster on on, on the day shift so mm. seven to seven I was producing something like 55 percent and numbers were very small mm. but nevertheless it was 55 percent of the total Mm. So then, you know, I got a better contract and happily I got more money and all that sort of good things happened. Mm. So I, how I did it was I, I copied all the people I had listened to mm. as a kid, really. And I copied them. So, for instance, one of the great things on the old radio, you'd have a comedian and he would talk either about his wife or his mother-in-law. Now, you never heard the mother-in-law or anything, uh, but it's the oldest joke in, in musical comedy. The mother-in-law or her great indoors or she who must be obeyed and used to have all these phrases. So I thought, this is a great idea. <laughs> so I invented the lovely Ingrid. Mm. So like nobody had met Ingrid or seen her or knew the first thing about her. But I'm talking about her all the time. <laughs> and then I'm out to dinner or something and people are coming over and saying to her, are you the lovely Ingrid? <laughs> you know. So And then there was the other one. There was, there was an amazing broadcaster. He came on after Terry Rogan at 10 o'clock called Jimmy Yump. And he had been a pop singer. He, in fact, had two number ones on the UK charts. And he he used to get this guy on called Tony D'Angelo. It's incredible. I can remember his name 40 mm. years later. And Tony D'Angelo used to talk about vegetables. Right? <laughs> and Jimmy would say, now, Tone, he always cut 
thing. That was the other one he did. Like, it was never the Jimmy Young show. It was the JY show. <laughs> and he never called it a program. He called it a Prague, so mm. he'd say, Tone, welcome to the Prague. And then Tony would say, well, now, Spanish onions are in your supermarket today. They're a great buy. And two and, or in old money, two and sixpence a, a bag. And, and they talk for 15 minutes about vegetables. And, and there's about two million people listening to this. Right? So I thought, I, I'm not interested in vegetables. And I don't know anybody who could do it, even if I was. But I am interested in film. And I know a guy who can do it for me. So I ring Philip Malloy, who was the film critic for the Irish Independent. And I said, Philip, do you want to come on the radio? And we used to do movies every week. Mm. Uh, and all we did was talk about movies and, and huge numbers of people. And then when I lived in America, there's only right-wing radio in, in America. There's no liberal radio. Mm. There's a famous guy called Rush Lumbaugh who had literally tens of millions listening mm. to and I said, I gotta get one of these guys. And then I trolled around the internet and I found this guy, Michael Graham. And and he was a right-wing radio guy in uh, Washington, DC. Mm. And he came on the show every week. And there was nobody like him on Irish radio. Mm. There was no uh, raving Republican, <laughs> you know, on Irish radio. And suddenly he and I are going hammer and tongs every Thursday. And and People ring up and say, I hate that American, and he's terrible. Mm. <laughs> but they listen, so it doesn't matter. You know, and then everybody travels. Mm. So I got a travel guy. And I copied all that. None of that was my idea, if you like. Mm. I copied the idea from essentially Jimmy Young and Tony D'Angelo. Mm. And then I copied the lovely Ingrid from all those old comedians of a hundred years ago. Mm. And then the other thing I did was I prepared. So I I, uh, I, I would go in early, radio or television, but you asked about radio and I'd, I'd prepare and I'd think about it like. So I never had notes really. Mm. Now, how do you do an interview with that? notes. I'm always amused when I'm on to watch television now, current affairs, and they all have a card in their hand mm. with the questions written on them, right? Now, what I did, I my first question was the same for everybody, just a variation, but it was mm. the same question, because the great Dunphy famously said one time, it's not about what the presenter knows, it's what the guest knows. So my opening question was, what's this all about then? Mm. Or some variation. Mm. Mm. And then the guy said, well, it's about a cure for cancer. So now what's the second question? Second question is really, that's fantastic. I know nothing about cancer, explain. Mm. Because the, the listener at home doesn't know either. Mm. So you're there representing the listener. So, so what kind of a question would he ask or she ask? And that's all the time that you're thinking about. In the back of your head, I had a person. Uh, Terry Wogan, when he retired, thanked 
one person, the person who listened to her, right? <laughs> one person, and there's millions, there's been talks about one. Um, the Gaelic correspondent, the Irish Times, told me that he used to write for an old lady in Mayo, you know, when he was writing his column, he was thinking about her. Mm. So I used to get this person in a car, going home from work, don't know whether it's male, female, don't know what age it is, but I know they've had a hard day at the office and they want me to bring them home. Mm. So that's all I did. I, I, I tried to ask the questions they wanted to ask. Mm. And also, like, whether I was smart about it or not, I asked the questions that, you know, explain to me, you're the expert, explain mm. to me. It doesn't matter, ultimately, whether it's, it's Sinn Féin or it's a professor of medicine, the questions are the same. You're just simply saying why, what, where, and when, mm. which is like the first thing a newspaper journalist learns. The editor, a, a raw journalist, on his first day in the office, he is told in the first paragraph, I want to know where, what, how, and when. Mm. That's all I did. So it wasn't very difficult. Mm. Well, well you know, some of your ideas may have been lifted or turned around in different ways. Your honesty was, I mean, incredible. I was only talking recently uh, that, you know, all of the subject matters that we discussed, erectile dysfunction, a load of stuff. It was during a period of time where you had Jerry Ryan, Stern in the US. So there was a lot of personal honesty out there. But what was that like? And did you ever confess things that you felt or you wished you hadn't? Well, like, I wouldn't have confessed them if I then thought it was a bad idea. The reason I think, and, and I think it was the most important thing, if I can say I was successful, that contributed to my success on radio and television, was I actually got the job when I was old, as opposed to getting a job when I was young. So what I had was, in that 20 years, between 55 and 75, was I had a life. I had led a life. I mean, I had been a near bankrupt. I'd, I'd flirted with suicide. I'd done all that. I'd traveled. I'd done all that sort of stuff. I'd, you know. Um, so, uh, therefore, I, I wasn't worried, really although I should have been because I had no money when I started. But I didn't think about being fired, you know. I always thought, this is going to end next week. Like, they're, not going to, they're not going to keep this old guy. But And, and so it kept going. So, so I just said it the way it was, you know. I, I remember talking about prostate cancer, which I was very serious about, you know, and... I, I said I, I talked about my GP putting his finger up my bum, you know, <laughs> to test my prostate. And a guy rings in, he says, George Gap, he's serious. I, but funny enough, I then got a, a, a call from the Manor Hospital, and the guy there said, You're the first person who's talked about that mm. this test is very easy because men don't go to the doctor, as we all know, you know. And then I had erectile dysfunction, you know, so I I uh, I talked about it, mm. uh, and then I used to have Kira Kelly, who now is on breakfast for News Talk, and and, and uh, took over for me at lunchtime 
when I was fired. Um, like, but Kira used to be on as my GP, like, and I talked to Kira about how difficult it is for old men because they have to pee all the time, you know, and people are going to say, George, you can't say that. But like, that, that's all the old guys who have to pee all the time know it's true. Anyway, uh, such a storied, such a storied career. The final thing, and we touched on it last time, you have a new role. Uh, it's back at your old school, but you have a new role. Yeah, and, and this is very exciting. And we've had a fantastic year, which, as you can imagine, how difficult it is in school with the pandemic. But the transition year guys in Presentation College in Cork have a number of options. And about 25 of them took what they called the journalism option. And then the teacher uh, asked me, will I get involved? So I said, we're not doing journalism, we're doing communication, you know? <laughs> now, unfortunately, I had too many meetings over Zoom and not enough meetings in front of the lads, but I still had a lot of meetings. And we produced four podcasts, you know, and at the very beginning, I said, who's going to do something? And not a single hand went up. And then suddenly a guy said, well, my mom's American. I know a lot about the American New York subway system. Can I talk about that? I said, of course you can. Then another kid says, George, I'm in a wheelchair. Can I talk about what it's like to, to be in school in a wheelchair? Absolutely. And suddenly you know we we did four of these these podcasts and well next year hopefully with no pandemic uh, next year's transition year group will will do four times that probably 15 16 podcasts but these 20 odd guys and it can never be taken away from them they were the first you know? <laughs> they were the first praise boys mm. to do this podcast and and it was incredible fun I mean, for me, uh, like a lot of people say to me, like, well, you don't look easy, George, or you don't act easy, George. Well, I don't know why, but I have a shrewd idea that part of it is, as a rugby coach, I was working with young people all the time. For 10 years, I coached the under eights in Willow Park, <laughs> an unruly hundred eight-year-olds. Um, then I work with school kids and so on. And even in radio and television, I mean, the entire team on, on my program, if you had their ages together, were probably less than my age, mm. you know. So working with young people is incredibly uh, energizing, if you like. Mm, mm. Finally, you said you know you've you've lived eighty, and I can testify you don't look eighty. But I, if you were to reflect on your life, are you happy with the eighty years you've spent? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> Sometimes broadcasters, Jack, ask a brilliant question without realizing they've asked a brilliant question and you've just done that, all right? Now, you've got to remember um, that I adored my parents. I talked earlier about my father after mass and walking, talking, and my mother, like, my mother had adored me and I adored her and my mother could talk for Ireland that's where my talking comes from from my mother they both had left school at 14 
They were educated by the Cork City Library. They brought me to the library at seven and gave me a love for books and language that has never left me. And I treated them appallingly in the latter days of their life, for which I beat myself up every single day. And I, I, I both of them, my father died first, and then I think, I, I mean, uh, okay, I, I was married with kids, and I had a business go wrong, and I had all these things. Sure, there's no excuse, there's n and I don't excuse it. My treatment of my parents in their latter days was awful. And I believe in heaven, you know, and I'm not a great mass scorer, and I'm certainly not a daily communicant or anything like that, but heaven is very important to me because... I know they're there, right? And I, I'm going to die and I ain't going to go to heaven. Mm. And I'm going to say, ma'am, like, she never saw me successful. She only saw me failing. And I said, ma'am, I made it, you know? After everything you gave me, I made it. And I'm so sorry to both of you for what I've done. And that's it. Well, certainly... You have treated myself incredibly and the audience for coming back and doing this again. George Hook, once again, thank you so much. Pleasure. Yes, thank you, Laura, for the last time here on CRC. What a show, what a show. Uh, George Hook, uh, illustrious, incredible, especially the ending there, it got into a level at which I didn't think it would go and it was uh, exceptional as well Donald Ryan almost as incredible you know we, we were uh, looking for somebody to talk about sport today Kevin is on a train or he's gone on his he's always on his journeys it seems lately so I said Donald Ryan see what he's about and it seems like he's about uh, quite a lot so I'm sure um, he will be uh, he will definitely hopefully be here next week or, or one of the weeks really excellent performance by him and just for everyone out there thanks so much to you the listener for staying with us and tuning in of course if you want to text in you can text 087-935-0043 maybe reserve those for tomorrow night tomorrow night of course we'll see Noah Baba on this very program all the way from Germany he'll join me I had to do a little bit of work on the audio it goes up and down but I think we should all be very happy with it finally tomorrow uh, if we look at what exactly tomorrow is tomorrow a bit of a downer it's World Elder Abuse Awareness Day so yeah it's, it's, it's apparently a widespread problem I've never encountered it myself but I suppose nursing homes things like that maybe national bug busting day is also tomorrow and you have uh, it, the, the way the website is formatted you have this kind of shrill scared older person on top and then a child with a small bat below just uh, absurd placing and it's also nature photography day so if you have too much time on your hands take a picture of a tree until then we will see you tomorrow and to play us out we're going to pick a number fr from Pusha T this is if you know you know Pulling up in that new toy.